1920s, Lloyd Glenn was en route to Washington, D.C. for a business trip. He said, it was also very ordinary, until I landed in Denver for a plane change. As I collected my case from the overhead compartment on the plane, an announcement was made for a Mr. Lloyd Glenn to see the United Customer Services representative immediately. At this point, I knew something was wrong and my heart sank. When I got off the plane, a solemn-faced young man came towards me and said, Mr. Glenn, there is an emergency at your home. My heart was now pounding. I called the number he gave me for the Mission Hospital. My call was put through to the trauma centre, where I learned that my three-year-old son had been trapped underneath the automatic garage door for several minutes and that when my wife had found him, he was dead. CPR had been performed by a neighbour, who is a doctor, and the paramedics had continued the treatment as Brian was transported to the hospital. By the end of the call, Brian was revived and they believed he would live, but they did not know how much damage had been done to his brain, nor to his heart. They explained that the door had completely closed on his little sternum right over his heart. He had been severely crushed. My return flight seemed to last forever, but finally I arrived at the hospital six hours after the garage door had come down. All that night and the next day, Brian remained unconscious. It seemed like forever. Finally, at two o'clock that afternoon, our son regained consciousness. By the next day, he was pronounced as having no neurological or physical defects. Almost a month later to the day of the accident, Brian awoke from his afternoon nap at home and said, Sit down, Mummy. I have something to tell you. At this time in his life, Brian usually spoke in small phrases, so to say a large sentence surprised my wife. She sat down on his bed and he began to tell his remarkable story. He said, Do you remember when I got stuck under the garage door? I called to you, but you couldn't hear me. And then the birdies came. The birdies? My wife asked, puzzled. Yes, he replied. The birdies made a whooshing sound and flew into the garage. They took care of me. One of the birdies came and got you. She came to tell you I got stuck under the door. My wife asked, what did the birdies look like? They were so beautiful, Brian said. They were dressed in white, all white. Some of them had green and white, but some of them had on just white. Did they say anything? My wife asked. Yes, they told me the baby would be all right. The baby? My wife asked, confused. Yes, the baby lying on the garage floor, Brian went on. You came out and opened the garage door and ran to the baby. You told the baby to stay and not leave. My wife nearly collapsed upon hearing this, for she had indeed gone and knelt beside Brian's body and seeing his crushed chest, knowing he was already dead. She'd looked up and around her and whispered, Don't leave us, Brian. Please stay if you can. As she listened to Brian telling her the words she had spoken, she realised that his spirit had left his body and was looking down from above on his little lifeless form. Then what happened? she asked. We went on a trip. Far away. We flew so fast up in the air. They're so pretty, Mummy. And there were lots and lots of these birdies. Brian said they brought him back to the house and that a big fire truck and an ambulance were there. A man was bringing the baby out on a white bed and he said that he tried to tell the man the baby would be okay, but the man couldn't hear him. He said birdies told him he had to go with the ambulance, but that they would still be near him. 
He said they were so peaceful and he didn't want to come back. And then the bright light came. He said the light was so bright and so warm and he loved it. Someone was in the bright light and put their arms around him and told him, I love you, but you have to go back. You have to play baseball and tell everyone about the birdies. Then whoosh, a big sound came and they went into the clouds. Brian told his mummy, the birdies are always with us, but we don't see them because we look with our eyes and we don't hear them because we listen with our ears, but they're always there. You can only see them in here. And he put his hand on his heart. They whisper things to help us to do what is right because they love us so much. John Barnacote, now in his 50s, says, My story goes back to 2005 when I quit drinking. In 2008, someone suggested I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Even though I'd quit quite easily and hadn't drunk since, I decided to go along. At the meetings, they mentioned about having a higher power. It could be anything, a friend, a tree, anything. I chose God, but I was also looking for some truth, to see if he was real. Unknowingly, it's almost like I asked for my near-death experience because I was praying for a glimpse of God because I'd had such a hard time imagining him. I asked for it every day for about four months. Then, one night after an AA meeting, I was about to get into my pickup truck when a lady who turned out to be on her fifth DUI swerved her Cadillac and hit me. What I'm told is that I went up in the air and I came down on her hood, bounced down and hit her windshield, falling off into the road and ending up 80 feet away in a ditch. I woke up 28 days later in hospital. During that time, I was on life support for 18 days. I couldn't breathe on my own. The first thing I remember when I woke up was a nurse said, Oh, you're awake. And I said, Well, I'd prefer to be outside on the ledge with the birds. And the nurse replied, There's no ledge out there and no birds. I said, Well, you better look out the window. And she went and looked and leaned over and said, Oh, there is a ledge down there and there are birds sitting on it. And she just gave me this horrified look because the ledge was down on the first floor and I was up on the fifth. And she knew I hadn't opened my eyes in 28 days. She ran out of the room. I closed my eyes with the hope I would go back out there on the ledge with the birds again because that's the first place I went when I left my body. I was outside the hospital and it's really different being in your spiritual body. In your physical body, when you want to go and sit down, you have that thought and then you have to get up and go over and sit down. Well, in the spiritual body, if the thought enters your mind, you just automatically go and sit down. Your body just moves. You don't have to walk anywhere. And I went and sat down with the birds and a bird landed and sat next to me and walked right through both my legs. And it was at that point that I noticed something else was coming then something else. And then when these three angels got there, I call them angels because I don't know what else to call them. They put their heads together and were having a conversation. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but when they were through with their conversation, they started to leave and one of them, I started to follow. And it must have sensed that I was following it and it stopped and said to me, 
you have to go back, and left. I found I went to another sphere full of blue sky. A beautiful man appeared. If you took a person's beauty and enhanced it five million times, then there you have it, because that's what it was like. They don't have any wings, but they are incredibly beautiful. He said, you have to go back now. And I left and was back with the birds again. And evidently, I went back to my body because when I woke up, I was there. And that was the only thing on my mind. And I knew then that I'd gotten a glimpse. I immediately started telling people there really is life after death. In fact, he even printed brochures out to hand out to people because he became so fervent in telling people about what had happened to him. Lord Geddes was a physician and a professor of anatomy. Being a physician, he should perhaps have been best equipped to understand what was happening to him when his consciousness parted from his physical body back in 1973. He told his account to a meeting of the Royal Medical Society of Edinburgh. On Saturday, November the 9th, he says, a few minutes after midnight, I began to feel very ill and by two o'clock I had developed all the symptoms of very acute poisoning, pulse and respiration being quite impossible to count. I realised I was very ill and very quickly reviewed my whole financial position. Therefore, at no time did my consciousness appear to me to be in any way dimmed. But I suddenly realised my consciousness was separating from another consciousness, which was also me. These, for the purposes of description, we could call the A and B consciousnesses. And throughout what follows, the ego attached itself to the A consciousness. The B personality, I recognised as belonging to the body, remember B for body, to minimise confusion in what follows, and my physical condition grew worse. I realised that it was beginning to show signs of being composite. These components became more individual and the B consciousness began to disintegrate, while the A consciousness, which was now me, seemed to be altogether outside my body, which it could see. Gradually, I realised that I could see not only my body and the bed in which it was in, but everything in the whole house and garden. And then I realised that I was not only seeing things at home, but in London and in Scotland. In fact, wherever my attention was directed, it seemed to me. And the explanation I received, from what source I do not know, but which I found myself calling my mentor, was that I was free in a time dimension of space. I next realised that my vision included not only things in the ordinary three-dimensional world, but also things in these four and more dimensional places that I was in. From now on, the description is, and must be entirely, metaphorical, because there are no words which really describe what I saw, or rather appreciated. Although I had no body, I had what appeared to be perfect, two-eyed vision, and what I saw can only be described in this way. I was conscious of a psychic stream flowing with life through time, and this gave the impression of being visible, and it seemed to me 
to have a particularly intense iridescence. I understood from my mentor that all our brains are just end organs projecting, as it were, from the three-dimensional universe into the psychic stream and flowing with it into the fourth and fifth dimensions. Around each brain, as I saw it, there seemed to be what can only describe in ordinary words as a condensation of the psychic stream. It was surprising to note that this vision or experience has shown no tendency to fade like a dream would fade, nor has it shown any tendency that I am aware to grow or rationalise itself as a dream would do. I think the whole thing simply means that, but for the medical treatment of a peculiarly prompt and vigorous kind, I was dead to the three-dimensional universe. If this is so, in fact, the experience of liberation of consciousness, it is a most important matter to place on record. In 2008, Dr. Rajiv Party was a busy cardiac anesthesiologist at the Heart Hospital in Bakersfield, California. He said, I derived my identity and happiness from the work I did and my family. But in August of that year, everything was turned upside down. First, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Then a routine surgery to treat my cancer led to complications, which required three additional surgeries. My new reality included constant, excruciating pain. As an anesthesiologist, I was the first to advocate traditional pain medications to manage severe pain so I used them myself, but I soon discovered that I became addicted to these medications. I was now a cancer survivor, living with post-surgical complications, chronic pain and addiction. Inevitably, within a year, I was also diagnosed with depression. On December the 14th, 2010, I was back in surgery for placement of an artificial urinary sphincter. After this surgery, I was very sick, running a fever of 105 degrees. Something was very, very wrong. Ten days later, on Christmas Eve, I was admitted to the emergency ward of the UCLA hospital for sepsis, a life-threatening, severe infection. Christmas morning, the medical staff performed emergency surgery. When the medical staff inserted a catheter to drain my urinary bladder, the pain was so intense that it triggered an out-of-body experience. Though my physical body was heavily medicated and asleep, I was now conscious and aware of a different plane of existence. I could see my body from above in the hospital. I was aware of conversations taking place. In the operating room, I observed the surgeons during and after the surgery. My awareness, a consciousness that was me, but was not limited to the location of my body, was completely intact. Not only that, but it was more acute and expanded. I remember being in the operating room, looking down at my body from 10 to 15 feet in the air. I was looking from the left side of where the surgeons were operating on me. I could see, hear and smell everything in the operating room, but also things far away. My senses became hypersensitive. With my awareness still in the operating room, I simultaneously heard a conversation between my mother and my sister. They were in India. They were talking about what they were going to prepare for dinner that night. Rice, vegetables, yoghurt, legumes. 
It was very cold and foggy there. My family was bundled up using a small electric heater to stay warm because there was no central heating. I discovered that it made no difference if people were near or far away. My awareness was everywhere simultaneously. My father appeared with his father at his side and my father took my hand and guided me towards the tunnel. At the end of the tunnel there was glowing bluish-white light. As I moved through the tunnel, it was as if time and space disappeared. I became aware that I was in two places, or states of consciousness, at the same time. Inwardly, I experienced a complete and cosmic peace. A state of pure harmony, without any disturbance or excitement. I felt total, undisturbed bliss in which I sensed the cosmic connection of everything in the entire universe. That space was very serene. Words are inadequate to describe it. I was also in the presence of a very calming, loving, formless, bluish-white light, an entity which I somehow knew and felt was supreme love, knowledge and intelligence personified. At the same time, I was back in the tunnel with my father. He was leading me. I could see my past, present and future. My father shepherded me through the tunnel. As he did, a profound awareness washed over me. I felt deeply soothed. After my father helped me cross the tunnel, I arrived in a place of profound calmness, light and joy. I was greeted by two beings who were like young men, radiating energy and light, full of vigour, enthusiasm and love. They told me, again without speaking, that they were guardian angels. They guided me through this beautiful place. There was a meadow, there were fields with many different coloured roses, mountains, a fresh crystal water stream was flowing, cool, soothing air was blowing. I could hear a soft chant in the distance, and yet completely audible. Simultaneously, the chant felt far away and yet very near to me. At the highest level of consciousness, there was no form, but an all-pervading force, a powerful entity of energy made of pure love. This pure, unbound consciousness was actually the base reality, the underlying fabric of absolutely everything in the universe. It was the source of all creation. As my awareness absorbed and understood this, I found myself simultaneously immersed in the formless, shapeless, bluish-white light. The being spoke to me, but I heard the words as if through a gentle wind that was whispering in my ear. My consciousness felt merged with the supreme primordial consciousness. The light told me that it was not my time to leave Earth. Everything would be all right, but my path was now going to be as a healer. I was told that I would have to leave anesthesiology and materialism behind. My next memory is of waking up in the recovery room. A nurse was there, but not my family. Within 30 minutes, though, family members arrived to see me. In the days ahead, the rate of my healing was nothing short of miraculous. Much to the wonder of the medical staff, my infection was all but healed within 72 hours and I was discharged. In the months ahead, the depression which had blighted my life for years was gone. So too was my addiction to painkillers. In 2004... Rita McPherson was living the dream, as most people would describe her life. She had the best of everything, and to top it all off, she was crowned Mrs South Africa. This opened many doors for her and ushered her onto a platform of public speaking for a career. 
Well, returning from a public speaking event one night, she and her family were involved in a very serious car accident, which left their 12-year-old son, Aldo, in a coma and on life support. She explains, at 6.30pm, we had a freak car accident on the Grasmere Toll Plaza just south of Johannesburg. There, on the highway, was a stationary vehicle without lights, right in our lane. My husband had no choice. He couldn't go right because that was the fast lane. He had to swerve to the left to avoid driving into this car. Well, the car hit a water furrow and rolled and rolled and rolled. When we finally came to a stop, it was the worst of the worst. My children were not in the car anymore. We struggled free from the car and I realised my kids were there. When I eventually got out of the car, it was only the silence of the night that surrounded me. I called to them and our little boy Josh then started crying from somewhere in the bushes next to the car. When I found him, he only had a cut to the head, but we couldn't find Aldo. I was running up and down the highway, scared and confused. I tripped over suitcases and some wreckage and fell on the tar, my hands bleeding. I remember a car stopped and a man got out and started praying. In the name of Jesus, no death will take place here tonight, he said. He kept saying, this boy will live and he will not die, repeating it over and over again. Well, she eventually found her son on the other side of the highway, and he was already in a coma. Despite medics at the scene telling his mother to say their goodbyes to him, he did live. However, he was left in a coma for months and suffered severe brain injuries. He was unable to speak after he came out of his coma. He was also blind, although one of his eyes eventually healed. When he wanted to communicate, he had to write things down. Well, as he began to write things down, he revealed what had happened when he'd been in the coma. He wrote about two children who he'd met, and he said they were very happy, but they were worried about the grief their parents were going through. He wrote down the address of where the parents lived. It was impossible that he would have known this family or their address. He said one of the children was called Anton. He said, Mum, you should tell Anton's mum that he's healthy. And he wrote down where to find Anton's parents. And that was exactly where they were found. By Aldo's mum. Anton's parents told Aldo's mum that Anton had Down syndrome when he had been alive. Aldo also wrote the name Dwayne. Well, it turned out that Anton's parents had called him Dwayne too, as a nickname. Carter Mills was a single parent back in 1979. One day, he was attempting to load up a heavy pile of wood when it began to slip back against him, pinning him to a steel pole. And all he can remember is an intense, sharp pain and then a black void. Then, he found himself floating horizontally above his own body, being able to see his crushed body on the ground below and watching as people ran forward to help him. He heard them shouting for someone to get an ambulance and that he was running out of air. He watched as his own body went blue and he was astonished to realise that he could see his own body dying below him. He clamoured to try to get back down into his body crawling with his arms as though he was trying to swim down, and he almost made it back into his body when suddenly he felt a gentle but firm pull on his arms. When he looked to where the pulling was coming from, he saw two angels. He asked them where they were taking him. They told him they were taking him to see God. He was very confused by this, but they sped away with him at what he says was tremendous speed, and he could see the earth disappearing below him. 
in front of him now was dazzling white light. He remembers asking the angels why it was not cold and why he was able to breathe. They told him, this is your spiritual body. These things do not affect it. In front of his eyes, he began to see his own life replayed to him from a child to adulthood. He saw a bird he'd shot. He saw the pain he had caused to the baby birds who had starved to death after their mother had died. He was told animals and plants have souls too. Then he was given the message that he would have no serious injuries because God had shown him how to heal himself. Then he was zoomed back to the scene of his accident. And astonishingly, now returned to his body on the ground, which had stopped breathing earlier, he was now able to breathe again and he got to his feet and walked to his car, to the utter astonishment of all who were around his body, desperately hoping the ambulance would get there soon. In fact, he drove past the ambulance after he left the scene, completely uninjured, or so he thought. In fact, he was severely injured, as he realised the next morning when he awoke to a pool of blood on his bed. He went straight to the doctor, who told him he must have surgery immediately, but he refused, remembering the message he'd been given the day before while out of his body. In fact, he ended up being sectioned in a psychiatric hospital because he refused medical treatment. However, he did indeed completely heal from his injuries without having any medical intervention at all, despite what all the doctors said he'd needed. Somehow, he really did heal himself. A pioneer of recording near-death experiences is Dr. Bruce Davis, PhD, who says, if the stories of people floating above operating tables, describing conversations and events happening while their minds are unconscious, going into a realm so different yet so familiar, a realm of love more real than real, does not convince people of life after death, then maybe there is no convincing. Calling these experiences a chemical reaction just does not pass the test for me. And he gives a very powerful example by way of recalling one of his favourite accounts. He said it's of a woman who died in a Seattle hospital. She went through the hospital ceiling and noticed that on the roof of the hospital there was an old shoe. Well, later, the existence of this shoe was verified by the medical staff. The exact location and the exact description of the shoe was identical to the woman's description. Davis asks... Are we to believe she had somehow been exploring up on the hospital roof before her accident and near-death experience? There's actually no way she could have left her bed during her stay at the hospital. Her condition was so serious that it was impossible for her to have got up from her hospital bed and walked anywhere. Dr Kenneth Ring and Sharon Cooper are also highly credited NDE researchers. Having interviewed more than 30 people who are blind and have had near-death experiences, including a lady called Vicky Amipeg, blind since birth, congenitally. She says, People ask me what I see and I tell them, I don't see light or shadows, I don't see black, I don't see anything at all. In my dreams, I don't see anything. I taste, touch, smell, hear sounds. In my early 20s, following a serious car accident, I can remember being in the medical centre and looking down at everything that was happening. And it was frightening because I'm not accustomed to seeing things visually because I never have before. And initially, it was pretty scary. And then I finally recognised my wedding ring and my hair. And I thought, is this my body down there? Am I dead or what? They were frantically trying to work on this thing that I realised was my body. And I felt very detached from it. 
and I had a so what kind of attitude and was thinking, what are all these people getting so upset about? And I thought, I'm out of here. I can't get these people to listen to me. And as soon as I thought that, I went up through the ceiling as if it were nothing. And it was wonderful to be out there and free, not to worry about bumping into anything. And I knew where I was going, and I heard the sound of wind chimes. As I was approaching this area, there were trees and birds and people, but they were all made of light. And I could see. It was really beautiful. I was overwhelmed by that experience because I couldn't really imagine what light was like. Everybody was made of light, and I was made of light. What the light conveyed was love. There was love everywhere. It was like love came from the grass, love came from the birds, from the trees. There was a point at which I could bring forth any knowledge I wished to have. That this place was where I would find the answers to all the questions about life. This was the place where all knowledge was. She says she became aware of specific persons that she knew in her life who were welcoming her to this place. There was Debbie and Diana, Vicky's blind schoolmates, who had died years earlier. In life, they'd both been profoundly learning disabled as well as blind. But here, they appeared bright, beautiful, healthy, vitally alive. <laughs>